Do you want to talk about books? Yeah. Hello, and welcome to A Well-Read Life. This is a place to share stories about good books and the reading life. I'm your host, Beth Jamison. Join me as I meander through my reading journey and discover the books that make up a well-read life. This week, I am thrilled to welcome Rachel Atkinson back on the podcast. If you listen to the podcast, you may have heard her episode from last year on Loris. I talk about Rachel on the podcast all the time. She is the dearest of friends. And today we are talking about motherhood and reading, how we can prioritize reading, the gifts of a really good book club, and also the bonding power of books between a mother and her children. I had the best time with Rachel. I always do. And I can't wait for you to hear our conversation today. And in case you don't remember from last time, a little bit about Rachel. She is a second-generation homeschooler who loves spending time with her husband and five children. Rachel loves the Bible, Charlotte Mason, literature, poetry, the office, and playing music on her piano. She also runs a real estate and renovation company with her husband, Ethan. You can find them at AthensRealEstateMan.com. Rachel is a voracious reader, and she has some of the best book recommendations. I hope you enjoy our conversation today. Rachel, welcome back to the show. I've found that there was a shift in my reading post-motherhood. So many novels had more meaning, were more poignant, etc. Besides making my reading life richer, I feel as though I connected to certain books on a deeper level, even if they weren't specifically about motherhood. Has this been the case for you? Yes. Thank you for having me back, Beth. I do love talking about books. And one of the things, this concept of our reading becoming richer or deeper, like post-motherhood, you know, really does track with as we are growing in our emotional vocabulary and depth and living life, that we understand themes a little bit more personally So, for example, not understanding maybe romantic storylines in books as well before I got married, that now they have a whole different meaning for me because I've personally experienced it or seen it or felt it. And I think it's the same way reading some of these books before you have children and then reading them again, where, you know, when I was growing up, we loved the Little House on the Prairie series and read it several times in my childhood And, you know, I always saw myself in Laura, of course, the little girl wandering across the prairie and in the untamed West, right? But now reading it to my children, I find myself identifying more with Ma and aspiring to be like Ma because she's so gentle and patient and quiet and calm and all the things we aspire to be. Oh, and she's doing it with no um, potable water. So that's something, Um, (laughs) you know, and so I think like the emotional depth of going through that experience in my actual life has allowed me to access these stories on a different level that I couldn't have done without that experience. Yes, exactly. So we've both read The Awakening of Miss Prim, and she has that whole part where she's talking to one of the women in the town about little women and their favorite character being Marmee. And when I read that, the first time I kind of, I mean, this was before my daughter, so I kind of just 
kind of skimmed over it, didn't pay much attention to it. But after reading it, after having a daughter and going back and revisiting Little Women, it's definitely Marmy has become a favorite character, whereas before I, I saw myself in Beth or one of the other sisters. I love that answer. It's it's very true. And I also love that you brought in Ma Ingalls because I can't wait to revisit that book series when Evangeline gets a little bit older. Are there any rereads post-motherhood that have surprised you with new insight or poignancy? I have mentioned before on the podcast several times that Kristen Lovren's daughter was this book for me, that it was so much more poignant to me after having become a mother. So are there any rereads like this for you? Yeah, I kind of you know mentioned Little House already. We're actually reading through that series right now. And I think kind of this idea of when you just said about little women that you see yourself as Beth, maybe, or which is funny because I always saw myself as Joe. This is why we're friends. You are definitely Joe. I'm definitely Joe. Joe. Yeah, no, no <laughs> doubts. And I think this is the beautiful thing about rereads, you know, classic literature. Reading it again is seeing it from a different perspective. And, you know, for me, I read Kristen Lovren's Daughter last year after I had children. That book would have hit completely differently if I had read it 10 years earlier before I had children because the themes of it and the growth that the character goes through, you can't really understand unless you yourself have experienced some of that. And I think I do think that there is just more depth in some of these like relational things that I glossed over pre-motherhood, perhaps. Because all of those things are in there. Like in Kristen Lovren's Daughter, the first time I read it, all of the insights that Sigrid Unset includes about motherhood were already there. But like you said, because I it didn't apply to me, I was just kind of glossing over it. Whereas I took more time, even though time is very limited as a mother, I took more time reading it and could see those gems within the story post-motherhood. In the Victorian era, there was the cult of motherhood, sort of this unrealistic depiction of mothers and women. There are, of course, exceptions to this. There are some wonderful books that don't portray women in this way. But I find so much more depth to the stories I've read recently. And those aren't necessarily books that were written now. They might have been written like Kristen Lovren's Daughter was written in the 1920s. So they might have been written somewhere in the 1900s. They don't idealize motherhood, but give a true depiction of it without sacrificing the tenderness and bond between mother and child. Is there a book or books that you find yourself going back to for its depiction of motherhood? What are the qualities of these books, Rachel, that make them especially appealing to you? Yes. Okay. So I talked about this the last podcast, but I want to talk about Beverly Cleary for a few minutes and how well she understands children and how well she writes families. When I was growing up, my mother read the Ramona series to us and Henry Huggins, all really all of the Beverly Cleary books I was exposed to as a child. But I really saw myself in Ramona. And it's interesting as an adult rereading them to my own children, how much of myself I still see in Ramona. As an adult looking back and going, oh, I was Ramona. And to say that, you know, I can also see this is the thing about when Beverly Cleary writes these characters that, you know, she knows children because she writes these neurodivergent children so well. And so I see my own childhood. I see the childhood of some of my children. What I have taken from it and how Ramona's mother 
parented her is she really focused on like Ramona as a whole person. And she didn't, uh, you know, patronize her or chastise her for being a child or for having curiosity or getting into trouble innocently. You know, she was very understanding of the unfortunate situation of being a child in an adult world. And I think that the way that Beverly Cleary wrote Ramona's mother is an encouragement to me now as a mother to see my children as unique individuals who are full of life and full of curiosity and seeing it from more of a story standpoint of I get to be an active participant in this story instead of seeing it perhaps as an annoyance or irritation. Inconvenience. Inconvenience is a great word. Yeah. And so I think that's one series just that encapsulates, I feel like, this really genuine picture of family and with all of its, you know, bumps and bruises in it. It's not a perfect idealized family. It's just like a normal family. And I think there's a lot of beauty in that. And it's been like since fifth grade, since I read her autobiography, Girl from Yam Hill. In it, her relationship with her mother was not very strong. Her mom didn't seem as understanding of children, if I remember. So it's wonderful that she could bring this grace to her writing. I have not read the Ramona series since childhood, and I know that I'm going to love them. I mean, I loved them then, and I know I'm going to love them again. And I've said before, like, one of Beverly Cleary's books was my first chapter book to read. And so she always has a very special place in my heart. In fifth grade, I read her autobiography. I just referenced it. And it was just probably one of the most forming books of that year for me. I just remember reading it and loving it so much. And I know it was just that insight that it gave into her writing, but also it was just it was so fascinating for me to hear her own story. So I would highly recommend that. Rachel has also read it and you love it as well, I believe. <laughs> yes, I actually have a quote from, uh, it's a two-part biography. So the first half of her life is A Girl from Yamil. And then the second half is called My Own Two Feet. And there's a quote in that second book that talks about wanting to teach versus being a librarian that I love. So I'm going to read it from the from the book. It says, no, I did not want to teach. My grammar school days had left me with several bitter memories, but I knew others had memories far more bitter. I did not want to become an unhappy memory to children trapped in a classroom. Children were free to come and go in a library. And that was kind of part of her background of why she chose to become a librarian instead of choosing to become a teacher because she wanted to be around children and she wanted to see the joy of them learning, but she didn't want to have the rigors and, and structure of a classroom situation. So I think that's really interesting that even in her professional life before she became an author that she put herself, in, you know, she was a children's librarian. She also curated a couple of other libraries that, you know, she put herself in a place where she could be continuing to observe children and get knowledge of them because she had written several of her books before she had her own children. So talk about being able to have a, a correct perception of motherhood even before she was a mother. Yeah, I love Beverly Cleary. I don't know if that's come across yet, but I'm big fan, big fan. We've talked about this briefly in our Loris episode, but how do you find the time to do your own personal reading with five children and homeschooling? And how do you prioritize what to read? I'm sure everyone would love to know this. I do my best reading, honestly, at night. And I know that you're not a night reader. 
correct? That is correct. I am not a night reader. Uh, my brain like automatically starts its like sh- cooling down around 9 p.m. regardless. So <laughs> I I love reading the Bible before I fall asleep. And that is a, like that's a traditional like that's what I do. So I read the Bible before I go to sleep. Um, and because that's been in my habit for so long now, I don't even consider reading anything else at that time. But to answer your question two questions. The first question is, how do I find the time to do my own personal reading? I do have five children and I do homeschool them. So on the one hand, I would say we have an atmosphere of reading in our home. So it is not uncommon to just see people sitting around reading books. This is part of the culture and atmosphere that we've curated. Because of that, there are books literally everywhere. And that is okay. When my husband asks if there have to be pens and pencils and papers and books everywhere, I remind him, yes, darling, we are running a school. So we do need all those supplies readily on hand, right? So I do actually carve specific time out of my schedule to allow myself time to read more purposefully or concentrated in a concentrated time span. So for example, I will take my children to the YMCA and I will let them swim in the pool while I sit on the side and read, you know, whatever book it is I'm reading. And, you know, depending on their activity and energy that day, I might read for an hour and a half or two hours, which is a pretty big chunk of time if I'm pushing through a book. So that's an example of how I will build time into my schedule to read. Also, when the weather's nice, we do spend a lot of time outside. And I find that my children need less of me when we're outside versus when we're inside. I feel like when we're inside every two seconds, I'm having a mom request. But when we're outside, just the space and the sunshine gives us like the ability to spread out and move around. So I get a lot of substantive reading done during our outside play time. So the kids will be playing and I will just have my book there. So that's from like some pockets of time. But from a practical standpoint, and I cannot emphasize this enough, the way to read a bunch of books is to have concurrent books going at the same time and have a book everywhere. So you have a book in your bag, you have a book in the car, you have one at your bedside table, you have one in the bathroom, you have one in, you know, in the kitchen. I have one by my timeout chair. So when I'm standing and ministering a timeout, and as a funny, uh, Beth gave me Kristen Lovren's daughter as a gift earlier this year. And just if you don't know, it's 1147 pages. It's a tome. It's huge. It weighs like five pounds. And my four-year-old's in timeout. And I picked up Kristen Lavern's daughter and I looked at him and I said, if we have to sit here all day, I will read this whole book while you sit there in timeout. <laughs> and he looked at me with a serious expression because he knew I would. I would just stand there and read that book <laughs> nonstop for hours. So I think like being flexible with how to, you know, how do we you know, consume more and what does that look like? That's going to be so subjective for each person. But I do think there are some pockets where we just have dead time that we could fill with a book if we just purpose to do it. So that's the answer to the first question. The second question of how do I prioritize what to read? I do have several book groups that I try to keep up with as well as my own personal reading. And then the curriculum that we use for our children, we do a Charlotte Mason style school and we use Ambleside online as the curriculum source, which is a free resource. 
and it helps to put the book list together for our school year. And it is, you know, heavily influenced by literature. So I would say probably about 30 books a year are coming through that curriculum stream. That's a substantial amount of really high, good quality literature that's being read out loud to my children on purpose. And so that kind of fits into like our school schedule. But then the outside of school reading, I prioritize books based on like, what is the next book I need to discuss in book group? Or what is the next deadline that I have? And then if I have nothing and I'm completely caught up, I get to read a few pages of a book just for pleasure, Mm -hmm. which is amazing also. I know I'm having a hard time getting like the pleasure reads, fitting them in because they're reading for book clubs and they're in the reading for the podcast. I have a couple of other questions, like follow-up questions we didn't discuss before, so I hope you don't mind me asking you. One, as we talked about it before, is do you note-take? Do you mark in your book? I know the last time I talked to you, I did not take, or last time, not last time I talked to her, I talked to Rachel all the time. The last time (laughs) that you were on the podcast, we talked about not marking in our books, but I have lately taken to making notes in my book with a pencil and I have it with me at all times with whatever book I'm reading. And I'm enjoying it so much and I never, ever thought that I would. So I didn't know how your style of note-taking, because kind of the the other follow-up question was how with as much as you read, how do you commit to memory favorite parts of the book or just with all the reading you're doing for various book clubs, remember characters or remember the plots of the different stories. So what is a way that you can file that information away? Is it through note-taking? Do you have some other secret? Oh boy, do I. (laughs) So yes, note-taking, we'll come back to that. But the secret is, and this is a Charlotte Mason thing, and the word we use is narration. Mm -hmm. So when we hit something super impactful, the way that we transfer that from our short-term memory to our long-term memory is by rewording that in our own words and repeating it out loud to someone else. That action solidifies it into our memory. So this is why copying something and writing it down from one place to another is effective, but not as effective as saying it out loud while you're doing it, right? Like every modality that we can kind of uh, do. So Charlotte Mason knows this about the brain, and this is why they propagate narration. This is a really big thing for Charlotte Mason uh, philosophy because the brain science is there. So from a standpoint of, I know we're going to talk in a few minutes about book club, but this is one of the reasons why book clubs or reading a book in a community setting is so impactful because being able to recount it to someone else is really invaluable. So like with my husband, he's not as avid of a reader as I am, but he gets the highlights. He gets the cliffs notes for all the books because I tell him about them. And in the act of me telling him about them, the stories become deeper and richer and have more meaning to me as well. Because by nature of recounting what we've read, we are highlighting the things that impacted us the most. So that would be my advice for anyone if you've read a book that really impacted you. So back over the Christmas break, we read a book called Everything Sad is Untrue by Daniel Nairi. And it's a biography by an Iranian-American. And I probably recounted the plot of that book 12 times over the course of the Christmas break because it was just very in the front of my mind. And it was easy for me to like, let me tell you about this amazing book I read. But here's the thing. That book is forever written in my mind now because I've said it over and over so many times. And so the impact that it had 
has only gotten deeper and richer by me recounting that for other people. So that's kind of what I would say as far as like if you really want to solidify it in your memory narration. Now, as far as the note taking, it's kind of dependent on like my mood a little bit. I really do write in my books a lot more than I thought I did now that I've started paying attention to after we talked about it the last podcast. I make myself notations as I'm reading. I use pen only because I use a bright blue pen so I can find it easily when I go back to look for it. I can't really explain it. Because I read the book so quickly, I, I remember the reason why I put the note in the first place. If I read a book and it takes a really long time to get through, I don't know, a couple of months to read it, then that method would not work for me because I perhaps wouldn't remember why it was impactful the first time I read it. But it really kind of depends on the book. I spend a lot more time notating and transferring notes to my commonplace book for nonfiction, which I do more as a summary. Like, here's the summary of this book versus like when I'm reading fiction, it's more like this quote was really impactful and hit me in an emotional way. So, you know, it, it, is, it does kind of depend on the books. But this is one of those things where it's like, find what works for you, buy yourself a beautiful notebook, but it only matters if you write in it. So take it off the shelf, open it up and write something from one book into your notebook. And that like that's how we start our commonplace. Something that impacted you or affected you in some way, we just transfer it over from the book into the notebook. And there you go. You have yourself a commonplace book. Do you find yourself referencing the commonplace books or do you finish with the book and then put it up or do you come back to those quotes later? No, I definitely come back to the quotes. So for example, uh, when we get to the book group in a few minutes, I'm going to read a C.S. Lewis quote that impacted me from a book I read two years ago. So that book was important to me. That quote was important to me. I took the time and energy to write it down in the notebook I was taking notes in at the time. I needed it now. I remember where it is because, again, there's emotional connection to it. Now, is this the best and proper way to do it? I don't know. I, I There's probably a better way to collate quotes and memories. But this is where it's like, how do we assimilate information and allow it to change and transform us? And so, you know, our little chicken scratch in our notebooks, it might be that that's what it, we need to do to write it on our hearts, you know? I want to go back very briefly. I loved what you just said, Rachel, but I also want to touch on real quickly about our husbands and narrating to our husbands. I do the same thing. It's like my debriefing over dinner. I haven't done it in a while as much, but I wish I could remember the book, but stuff was going on in the book. Heavy things were going on. And I was just like at dinner, I just was like, no context, did a terrible job of narration. But I was like, Brett, I have just got to talk to you about what is going on because I'm not sure if these characters are going to be okay. And so I go on this long, convoluted narration. And he was very gracious to listen to it the whole time. <laughs> I don't know if you were fine that with your husband. It was children of men. Was it? Probably? It was children of men. Probably you had the been. breakdown over children. Of, I remember you telling me the story. That dystopian book, that book was crazy. I Yeah. I, I think like with my husband, he loves to hear me talk about the books, mm -hmm. but he doesn't want to read them as much as I do, right. <laughs> if that makes sense. Like right. he's like, I mean, I'm glad you enjoyed it, right. but. Right. So going off of the book club, the last question that we've talked about, we're both part of the same book club. And it's one that we both never want to miss. We're actually part of two, but there is this one that's very special and dear to our hearts. It's a very vital part of our lives. Why is it so important for moms, especially, to have this sort of outlet and forge these literary friendships, Rachel? And what fruit have you seen in your life from book clubs? 
So I think that the simple answer of why it's important to have this outlet is the simple answer is that our hearts long for community. And in reading a book in common, I don't know about you, but in the community, like in our church community, there are very few people that look and sound just like me. Most of the people look different, sound different, have different perspectives and backgrounds. But for us to read the same book and then discuss it, we have this common ground. Now, generally that book is the Bible, right? But the concept of having commonality and community through literature is as old as time, right? And even like some of these Victorian novels that we're reading where they were periodicals, they were written one chapter at a time, they came out once a week in in a newspaper, and the entire family gathered around to hear the one person read it out loud. And this was a huge form of entertainment. So the idea that we're consuming and then discussing these books, and if you'd imagine like time of much less entertainment, radio, etc., where you read this chapter of this book together and then you discuss it because you're just sitting around knitting or sewing or washing or whatever you're doing anyway. There's so much quiet time. So I think that idea of like, let's just live our life together while also doing reading and discussing these higher things. I think that that's a common thing for women historically. However, I think that because of how fragmented and individualized our culture has become, we've kind of lost that, right? So this book group, this one specifically, but book groups in general, I think have this idea of setting aside everything else for a moment to come together for this common purpose. The One of the reasons I think this specific book group is so impactful is because we are choosing high literature that is really beautiful and really life-changing. And then we're choosing to do that together. And I think that's one of the reasons why this book group has been more impactful than some of the other ones that I've been in that maybe want to pick more um, book choices that are more focused on entertainment versus education or personal betterment, that there's a little lackluster stuff there where it's like, not as beneficial, not as life-giving. I think that's what makes this specific one special and unique is that we're choosing really good books and then we're trying to really assimilate them into our lives, into our hearts, and into the culture of our family. And I think the fruit that has come from that is really, really good friendships, deep, genuine impactful friendships that we just wouldn't get to that same place emotionally if we're only discussing the weather or sports or something like, you know, talking about these really high thoughts and concepts just kind of knit hearts together. And so being able to do that with other moms that have the same kind of uh, philosophy and belief is really life-giving and encouraging. Did you have any quotes to go along with that, Rachel? I couldn't remember if you had any to share. I actually, my favorite quote related to book groups in general is a quote from a book by C.S. Lewis called An Experiment in Criticism. This book is really about how readers should read. So it's a literature professor writing a book about how to read. That's kind of the gist of this book, right? So here's the quote that I, I loved from it. It says, we love to hear exactly how others enjoy what we enjoy ourselves. It is natural and wholly proper that we should especially enjoy hearing how a first-class mind responds to a very great work. 
So those are the two components, a first-class mind and a very great work. So I'm not saying that we all have first-class minds, gracious me, because we don't, but we have okay minds that can get even better and more stimulated by reading these really great works. And this is one of the reasons why we spend time on the classics and we read books that are above our level and that are challenging us. We do it together to make it more enjoyable, but we challenge ourselves because that's how we get better. We just finished Far From the Madding Crowd in this book club. I've already done a podcast episode about it. And also Wind in the Willows. And we were talking about on this past Saturday when we met about how the first time for a lot of us when we started Wind in the Willows, it was difficult to follow along. And it took that reading this really good literature for our minds to be stretched and to be able to even understand Wind in the Willows and appreciate it as it should be appreciated. So this book club has stretched me quite a bit, and I enjoy it so much. And I echo all of those things that Rachel said, because they are so true. And these women are such dear women, and their hearts are so similar. We're different in many ways, but our heart for reading is very similar and the desire to grow and have God work in our lives through these great works. We're all on the same page with that. Honestly, it's a godsend. And I am so thankful for these groups of women and this book club. Switching gears just a little bit, Rachel, I am adamant that reading with your children creates a strong bond. I experienced this in my own childhood, and I'm just beginning to experience it with my own daughter. Have you found this to be true? And why do you think it's vital in forging a bond with moms and their children? And or moms and dads with their children, because Brett does sit in with our reading, but I don't know that he enjoys it as much as I take delight in reading these beautiful picture books to my daughter. Yeah, so I do find this to be true, that reading with your children creates a strong bond because story is how we learn. Story is how we understand. Even the God of the universe, who is outside of our comprehension, reveals parts of himself to us through the Bible, through story, through how the people acted and interacted with him, through parables and through different narratives that we see in scripture. So this concept of being able to transfer ideas from one generation to another, from one person to another, what a great and delightful way to do that through story. I recall a couple of years ago, speaking of Beverly Cleary, I read it's a loose autobiography, but it's based on her childhood. It's called Emily's Runaway Imagination. And at the end of the book, I'm reading the last paragraph of this book that I've read to at the time, I believe he was seven. My oldest was seven, I believe. And we get to the end and the way it's written and the way it's wrapped up is such a beautiful conclusion to this really delightful story. And so I just sat there for a minute because the weight of the beautiful emotion of the story was just really heavy in that moment. And my son, who was seven at the time, you know, he looked at me and I could see it in his eyes was also, he felt the weight of the emotion of this book. And he said, mom, I want you to read all the books to me. And I am like, I do too. (laughs) I want to read all the books to you too. This is the problem. There's so many of them. How do we decide which ones to read next? But this sitting next to each other and opening a book and looking at it and exploring it hand in hand in a journey, like what a delightful 
way to spend time with our children and to show them what we value and how we can see that in these well-written stories that are also entertaining and delightful. And I think that that is vital for our children to do with whichever parent is reading to them because not only does it create a positive viewpoint of reading and education in general, but it also draws us together. Kind of the same idea about like why we read in community with book group. Why do we read to our children? Because now we have the same conversation. We can have the same thought and discuss different things. And so I just, I think that as my children are getting older, my oldest is nine now, that we'll read something and then the opportunity to discuss it, it just naturally unfolds because we're already in the middle of this great conversation. And so for him to ask a really thoughtful or insightful question based on the reading, great. Like I didn't have to conjure that up or create an environment you know, for him to, to feel safe to ask that question, like we already had that set up. So he was able to just, you know, ask the question. So I think from a parenting standpoint, you know, there's so many times where it's like, I could lecture you about lying or we could read this book about lying and I could say nothing and let the story speak for itself. Well, which one of those would be more pleasant to you? I know which one I would rather have. I would much rather have a story read to me than have a lecture. So, you know, that's one of those ways where we can use books to help us in our parenting as well. So going off of that, Rachel, what are some of your favorite childhood books that you can't wait to share with your own children? I could not wait to share its picture book. So I've already shared it with my daughter. I don't think she loves it as much as I did, but it's the Maggie B by Irene Haas. And that is one of my favorite books to this day. It's just a very cozy, peaceful, charming book about a sister and her brother. And she makes a wish and she dreams that she and her brother live on a boat for a day and it's just their everyday life. And it is absolutely delightful. I loved it as a child. I think that I am just that type of, was that type of child. My little girl is very precocious, a little bit different than I was. And she is not as in love with it as, as me, but I think she will appreciate the Francis books, which were another favorite of mine. These are all picture books that I can't wait to share with her and also the hundred dresses. I can't wait to share that with her, which I'll, these are lower grade books, but they are dear books to me. But Rachel, you have older children. you range from nine to four. Correct. So what are some of the books that you are very anxious to share with them? Sure. Some of the books that I can't wait to share with them, I would say, would be The Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, that's that's coming. It's looming. Um, I also really want to read the Anne series, the Anne of Green Gables from first to last. I think there's eight in that series. Uh, actually, there's a handful of Ellen Montgomery series that are delightful that will really be enjoyed in like middle school and early high school years. So those are coming. I think from and there's a handful of one offs, but definitely like there's we're getting into that like middle school, high school book list in the next few years. It's going to be really fun for us because we've kind of passed through the picture books and we're starting now in the chapter books, you know. So I have read the first two chapters of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe over the past couple of days to my little girl. And I think they're still a little bit above her. She's only four, but she's been watching the movie nonstop. She went with my husband to a friend's on Easter and watched The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I had to work on the podcast, so I couldn't go. And she is enamored with the story right now. So we read the first two chapters. I don't think it will continue because she was just excited that it was a book. We'll come back to that at some point. But that is definitely excited to share that with her. 
What are some of your favorite books that you have read with your children so far, Rachel? So one of my favorite books that we've read recently is called Understood Betsy. I think I even mentioned it the last time I was here. It's just a delightful book. We really have enjoyed reading through the Little House series. We're reading it through for our second time by request. I will read Little House all day long. Don't get me wrong. But we had finished it and put it away. And then six months later, they want to read it again. So we're halfway through long winter and it's long the winter. (laughs) The winter is long. Uh, Another one of our favorite books that we've read recently is George MacDonald's book, The Princess and the Goblin. That was a delightful book that we read last year. It also has a companion book called The Princess and Curdy, which we are halfway through. So we'll I'll let you know how it turns out. But so far, big thumbs up. Big fan of George MacDonald. Big fan of Princess and the Goblin. Okay, I want to ask you a question quickly about the Little House series. Which is y'all's favorite? Which is your favorite of the Little House series? I think I must have read... The first couple of books as a child, and I have not read them since, but I adore them. I watched the series incessantly as a child until my mom made me stop because it made me cry. But I love Little House in the Big Woods. It's still one of my favorites. I just love that sweet book. I remember keeping a copy of it in my Trapper Keeper in second grade, and I would pull it out. I know Rachel's laughing at me, and it's true. (laughs) I would pull it out. If I had a quiet moment at school and I would just get lost in the world of Laura Ingalls Wilder. So, Rachel, do you have a favorite? It is zero surprise to me that you had a pocket book (laughs) all the way back in second grade. You always have to have a book in your pocket just in case. So I've read the Little House series all the way through like probably five times in the last 20 years. And out of that, I think there's seven out of the seven I've read Farmer Boy 10 more times, probably, because Farmer Boy is by far my favorite. I love Laura and I love her story and arc, but Farmer Boy is, is you know, it's a standalone book. You could read it all by itself. It, it doesn't even have to be attached to the rest of the series. But it's really interesting because it's about this nine-year-old boy's life on a farm mm-hmm. and talk about an excellent maternal character in literature Almanzo Wilder's mother is just a delight. There's this one comment that he makes about, you know, the girls are, his sisters are fine and the food looks great, but nothing is as beautiful as his mother. And, you know, reading that, you know, he wrote that with his wife 50 years later after his mother had passed and to see how he honored her memory in recalling memories of her from his childhood. I want my children to remember me as pleasant and calm and graceful and gentle and, you know, all of these characteristics that that he said. So I love Farmer Boy. It's my favorite. Anytime I find it, I buy a copy and I give it to people because it's one of my favorite books of all time. I'm so glad you said that because I have not read it yet. And now I really want to read it. I'm so curious about it. And I have kind of a little bit of a window of a book to read before I need to start another series for the podcast. Maybe I can sneak that one in because I do have a copy and I don't know why I've never read it before. I think as a little girl, I have five brothers. I had no interest in in reading books about boys, but now my tastes have widened. So I'm not as prejudiced against books about little boys. (laughs) Maybe you would enjoy it. I would enjoy it now. Okay. We have done the quick round of literary questions the last time that you've been on here, Rachel, but I thought it would be fun for you to talk about the best book you've read in the last year and if you have any book recommendations for the listeners. 
I think your listeners are going to get tired of me talking about Beverly Cleary, Laura Ingalls Wilder, and C.S. Lewis, because that's pretty much where I've been for the last couple of years. But the best book I read last year was Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis. Uh, that was actually a reread for me. I read it when I was maybe a teenager, and I did not get it. It completely conceptually flew right over my head. I don't know if it's motherhood. I actually think it's more loss and suffering that added the poignancy to it when I read it again this time. But there was something so beautiful. It was like glimpsing the gospel through a veil is how I felt when I read that book. As far as book recommendations, I had the privilege of reading my first Elizabeth Googe book over the Christmas break. I don't know how it can get better than this. I hope it wasn't her best book, but it was so good that it might have been her best book. But you've already done a podcast on this on this book. But the book was called The Dean's Watch. And then I went on. I'm actually now on my third Googe book. So after that one, I read The Scent of Water, which I thought was great. And now we're reading The Little White Horse. And that's actually part of our school curriculum. So it's actually a school book for us, uh, but also written by Googe. There's something about the way that she constructs thought through words that is really beautiful and unique. She's a very impactful writer in the way that she sees humanity clearly in a way that is redemptive. I really enjoyed just how she was able to handle well so many characters and do justice to even even the small little characters that, you know, we it, and it's not like everyone's ending was happy or anything. It was realistic, and therein lies the beauty, right? So that was an excellent book I really enjoyed. And then I, I mentioned it earlier, but from a nonfiction standpoint, that the book Everything Sad is Untrue by Daniel Neary. This book is a mainstream, I think it's a middle grade book. It was sold, you know, at just a regular Barnes & Noble type book, but it is uniquely Christian in that it is kind of the author's telling of his mother's conversion and how the loss that she endured to faithfully do what she believed was right and what they had to go through in that journey. It's written from the perspective of a 12-year-old boy. So there are parts of it that when you're a child, things might be confusing. And so the way that he writes it as an adult is like, it's a little vague and a little, we're not really sure exactly, but it's written in such a delightful manner. And because he's um, Persian, he brings in a lot of the Arabian Nights themes and the Sherazadi tales. And so he, he writes in that kind of style which if you like fairy tales, it's a very delightful and engaging way to read. So I would highly recommend that book. It was really impactful to me and to the people that read it at the time. Do you think it'll be a book that you'll share with your kids? Or are you going to wait till they're just a little older? So I do think I absolutely would read it to my kids. I do think it is a little older. There is some violence in it. The violence is really more related to religious persecution. We are reading a book with our Ambleside curriculum called Trial and Triumph, and it is a book of essentially Christian martyrs. So even today, we read a biography of this woman who was martyred for her faith. And so, you know, when we're reading that as part of our curriculum, and the conversation already is adversity can come by following and doing the right thing. I think that that concept is already there. But actually hearing like the torture and the, these terrible things that happened, you know, that part is a little darker. So I would probably say maybe 12-ish or so is probably the age range that I would be comfortable reading to my children. And what are your kids thinking of The Little White Horse? Are they enjoying it so far? 
so far, we literally have only read chapter one because okay. we just we just started term three. So this is our th- uh, third term literature book. The thing, again, you know, so far that she's so good at is character development. Mm-hmm. So we, we've only met four characters so far, but we know a lot about those characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the way we do the Charlotte Mason school is I read to you and then you tell back what I read. We don't quiz. We don't test. We just use this like so- Socratic discussion method where we discuss, right? And so that allows for them to cement it in their brain as we move forward. So, and I don't think I mentioned this earlier, but I did want to mention about having concurrent reads going at the same time. You know, my children have probably 10 books at a time going for their school, like 10 different plot lines. I myself probably have four to six books going at any one time. My husband says, I need to mention this part. So I (laughs) am going to honor my husband and mention this part that when I tell people that want to increase their reading, that you need to read more books than one at a time. And sometimes I get pushback, like, how can I possibly concentrate and track more than one book at a time? To which I would say, how many TV shows can we track Mm. and pay attention to at one time? The average person probably can watch four or six TV shows and have a rough idea of the characters and the plot line and keep up with those, even if you're only seeing one episode a week. Same is true for books, right? That we can get slowly draw books into our life and into our reading and then keep them going concurrently. The advantage of that is also depending on your mood. If you're only reading a biography, but at that moment you feel like something lighter hearted, well, sorry, you're only reading a biography. Whereas if you're reading a biography and a fiction and a book of poetry or something else that you kind of have a little bit more options of what do I feel like reading right now? How much time do I have to read? How committed can I get into the story? Can I only read three pages? I'll read this book. As opposed to, oh, I have an hour. Okay, I'll read this book. So I always encourage people whenever I talk about reading, the two things that I encourage is reading more books than you're reading. Grab a couple more and get started. And then the second thing is if you have the ability to listen to reading, that speeding up the reading speed and trying to read at the same time is just a great way to stretch our skills as a reader. So what that looks like for me is I'll put a book like Far From the Madding Crowd is a great example. Classics are great examples because they're often in the public domain, so they're free. So I'll read the book in my hands, in my in my lap, while I listen to it at two times speed and be fully immersed in it so that I can read it twice as fast as I would otherwise. What I'm trying to do is comprehension. Can I can I track it? Can I keep with it? And this is just like a brain exercise for me. I there's no, I don't know that there's like science behind this, but I do know that like if I was trying to get faster at running, I would run with someone that's faster than me. So me, you know, trying to keep my speed up with someone reading at two times speed, you know, makes me a better reader. So just some little tips that help me to get through large amounts of quantity of books at a time. The key there is retention, right? Mm-hmm. Like we, we don't want to go too fast that we're not remembering what we're reading or being able to track it. So this might be you have to work your way up to it. And Rachel, what do you do when you have a lot of people say a reading slump? But what do you do when you can't get to reading or you're just having a hard time sitting down and paying attention? Is there any tips that you have for that? Do you have that happen to you at all where you just can't? It's like your mind won't settle when you sit down to read. 
Sure. I like to call those book hangovers. So <laughs> I, this happens to me, especially after I finished something that's really beautiful or impactful. I remember after I read Kristen Lovren's Daughter, I think I went three weeks before I read something again because it just I had so much to chew and think about and process. Because I read so at such great quantities, I really don't get down on myself anymore. Mm -hmm. I think I used to maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago go, oh, I haven't read a book in three months. I should read something. What's wrong with me? Now it's different because our atmosphere is more focused on reading and our homeschool is more focused on reading. So there's still always reading going on. But that feeling of I just can't get into the story or I just don't feel like I just don't feel like it right now. I think that this, it's okay to like acknowledge that and just do something else mm -hmm. instead of making yourself do something you don't really want to do. Like use that time to do some drawing or to pick up an instrument or practice a foreign language or do something else with your brain. Our brain is a muscle like anything else and can get fatigued like anything else. So change is as good as a rest. So sometimes giving ourselves breaks after asking our brain to read something really difficult is the thing we need to do and allow ourselves to have space to recover and then come back with renewed vigor. All right. Very last question. I'm going to throw this at you. I'm very sorry to do this. We did not discuss this earlier. I'm sorry. And I hope it's not repetitive. What is your favorite comfort read? Man, this is such a churchy answer, but the Psalms... <laughs> I think that there are certain books that lend themselves to being like, I would say The Awakening of Miss Prem is probably a book I'll reread regularly. I read The Great Gatsby once a year. I don't know why. I have no explanation. It is not comfortable to read. So it's not even <laughs> for the sake of comfort. But I do think that there's a handful of those like children, like really well-written children's chapter books. And that's like the Anne of Green Gables, Secret Garden, those kinds of things where like if you will just get lost immediately in delight. If I were to hit a slump that was extended that I did not know how to get out of, those would be the kinds of books that I would go to for sure. That's the same for me. So Elizabeth Googe is now my my major comfort read. When you were talking earlier about when you have like heavy books and to have something lighter in there, that's we had a couple of heavy books and I was rereading one of her books and it is exactly what I needed. It's it's just peaceful and calming and cozy and just speaks so much of home throughout this book and most many of her books. So she's the one that I have and also Psalms. That's the one I go to and I, I I don't know what to read in the Bible when I have moments of that of like I don't know where where to go next. I usually will just take a little bit of time and go to the Psalms and read through those because just the heart cry of David so often echoes what I am experiencing at the time. Genesis is also another one, strangely, that I go back to. It's it's something with the stories and just takes me back to childhood and, and the years spent in Sunday school in a good way. Reading these stories of these men who failed over and over again, and yet God was merciful and gracious and used them. And that is, I find that so encouraging. So with that, Rachel, thank you so much for being on the show. I am so privileged to know Rachel in real life. She is one of my dearest friends. I reference her on the podcast all the time. <laughs> 
I love hearing what she's reading. I love picking her brain about reading. And I I just wish you could all just sit down with her and have a cup of tea and discuss books. But I'm glad that she was able to be on the podcast and talk to you through this medium. So Rachel, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Beth. Have me back. (laughs) I will, because we're going to talk about Beverly Cleary. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's all for this week. I'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. In the meantime, I'd love to hear from you. So if you have a book suggestion, if you just want to have a little bookish conversation, you can email me at beth at a wellreadlife.com. I also have a website that's still in the works. You can also find me there. It's a wellreadlife.com. And I'm also on Instagram at wellreadbeth. Enjoy your week. Until next time.